Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Hi there, everyone. Welcome back to Moving the Needle. Have you ever looked at a roster of students at the beginning of a semester and thought, how in the heck is this going to work? How are all of these students with wildly different backgrounds and experiences, career pathways and prior coursework, how are they ever going to cross the same finish line at the end of the semester? Well, that's one of the challenges faced by the Medical Cannabis Science and Therapeutics Program here at UMB. This master's program is the first in the country dedicated to the study of medical cannabis. Students in this program are health providers for sure, but they're also policymakers and regulators, dispensary staff and business people, each of whom need to have a shared understanding of the research and science around the medical uses of this plant. Our guest today is a faculty member in this mostly online program, and she'll share how she accounts for this incredible diversity of learners in her course. She'll also describe strategies to create boundaries so that students can get the support they need without requiring the instructor to be responding to emails at all hours of the day and night. Let me introduce you now. Dr. Tiffany Buckley earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of California, San Francisco. She completed her acute care pharmacy residency at Yale New Haven Health, then completed a specialized residency in psychiatric pharmacy here at UMB. She is a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist and a board-certified psychiatric pharmacist. She develops innovative courses and interventions to educate students, healthcare practitioners, and the public about medical cannabis. Tiffany, welcome to Moving the Needle. I am so excited to be here. It's going to be a great conversation. I'm excited too. Well, let's let's jump in. So by way of context, you are one of the inaugural faculty members in a unique graduate program here at UMB. Can you tell us a little bit about the Master's of Science in Medical Cannabis Science and Therapeutics? Yes. So I am really proud of this program. It's all because of the vision of our dean at the School of Pharmacy, Dean Natalie Eddington. She saw that there was a need to train people about medical cannabis. So the National Academies of Science in 2017, they actually released a report about cannabis and its therapeutic potential. And what that report showed is that there was there was some therapeutic potential for cannabis in different areas, like chronic pain, for instance. But um, interestingly, most health schools don't, health professional schools don't teach about cannabis or the system of the body that cannabis works in. So through Dean Eddington's vision, this program was born. And what I think is a real strength of the program is that it really takes in a whole bunch of diverse students because medical cannabis can touch so many different people. So we don't just have healthcare practitioners, but we also have people who are in business, people in law, people in marketing, because all of these fields can still have an impact in the medical cannabis industry. Yes, and we're going to talk about that very diverse student body uh, as we get into our conversation today. But just to frame uh, for our listeners, can you talk about the specific course uh, that we'll be exploring today? 
So because I am a psychiatric pharmacist, I teach a course on cannabis and mental illness, well, mental health. So the name of the course is Advanced Cannabis Therapeutics for Neuropsychiatric Conditions. And in that course, we examine where does cannabis really fit in for the treatment of numerous psychiatric and neurological disorders? So we talk about cannabis and psychosis, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, insomnia, and autism. And through that course, I really worked hard with the instructional design team, starting with you, to make sure that I infused uh, the concept of evidence-based medicine into that course so that students really get the opportunity to dig through the literature and figure out how is cannabis being used for treatment and what does the evidence even say? So one of the first things that you recognized when you were designing this course is that there were going to be students taking this course from a diverse array of backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about that and what implications it had on how you designed it? Yeah, so diversity is definitely one of the strengths of the program, and I really wanted to make sure that I could meet learners where they were. So I started off with just a survey to figure out what people's backgrounds were. So the survey results were very illuminating. I had... Um, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, nurse managers, veterinarians on the healthcare practitioner side, but I also had CEOs of medical cannabis industries, a filmmaker, um, as well as bud tenders who are responsible for selecting different strains of cannabis that people will be utilizing within the dispensaries. So it was a vast array of people. So I started off knowing that each of those learners were going to need different types of things. However, I could still structure my class in a way where I could kind of catch everybody. So what I did is I started off setting expectations. So because this is an advanced cannabis therapeutics course, I knew that I was going to be teaching people about how to utilize cannabis for treatment, but I wanted to be mindful that not everyone has a medical background, and it's important to emphasize that people should not be practicing outside their scope of practice. So for the healthcare practitioners, yes, we're going to talk about treatment. We're going to talk about more about how to appropriately dose to avoid harm, but for my other people, I wanted to focus more on making sure that they were really educated about the disease states that we were talking about. So I had to utilize plain language terms to explain that to them and also explain how cannabis is going to affect these different disease states, as well as have everybody go through the literature and really figure out, okay, what are the, the benefits of cannabis and the limitations of cannabis that we see from the literature, understanding that there is a lot of bias around the literature. Um, so basically, within my course, we had, we ended up having, I ended up creating um, different questions for people 
who had different backgrounds. So I would have a very similar assignment. They would all get a very similar patient case. We would go through the pathophysiology, go through the literature, but for the healthcare practitioners, we take it to the next level where they're talking about um, treatment considerations, whereas for my people in what I now call the patient educator or patient advocate um, section, they are more responsible for really helping um, go over the evidence with patients so patients can make an informed decision about whether or not that they would like to utilize cannabis, but it's important that they have all the information and then how to connect patients with their healthcare providers and have patients advocate for medical cannabis use with their healthcare providers. So now how do we navigate the whole medical system, which is already vastly confusing? Yeah, that's great. So it really sounds like you went from that analysis phase with the with the survey and the survey results and getting a sense of who who is in here and then making significant but not duplicate um uh, modifications to the assignments. And by that, I mean, you're not creating completely different assignments for everyone, but you are modifying them based on their level of experience and knowledge and role. Exactly. Yes. And I feel like that allows me to tailor the learning experience to who is in the class, provide that personalized touch that people need, meeting people where they are, and really maximizing their skill sets so that they can go out into their different professions and still have all the information that they need to provide information about cannabis. Because especially with cannabis, um, and this happens a lot with many things in medicine, but people's health literacy is, is very low in general, which that means people's ability to find health information, understand it, and use it. And with cannabis, it's so much more confusing because when you go online, you either see cannabis is good or cannabis is bad. But what's the truth? That's really hard to kind of tease out and deduce. So with this class, I teach everybody's skills to be able to, to, to do that, to find that information, but also communicate it with others, regardless of what your background is. Yeah. And, and that's going to lead us to the next challenge we'll talk about, which is that um, reviewing the evidence. Um, but before we go there, I, I just wanted to ask a question about how the relationships among these very different groups of students played out, because it could run the it could run the risk or have the potential of sort of creating a tiered system within your class. We've got the healthcare providers over here and we've got kind of everybody else, just your kind of layman folks over here. How did that play out in terms of their relationships? Did it create a hierarchy? Were they collaborative? So I think it's all about, I think that framing is very important. So I try to frame everything in the way that we all have a very specific role to play. And we all are very important in that role about medical cannabis and making sure that we get that information out. But all of us have different skills. So for instance, my fiance is an, an engineer, even though I'm great at 
reading and dissecting pharmacy and medical knowledge. When he talks, I don't understand what he's saying half of the time. So I can kind of know something about engineering, but my that's not my background. Um, so we want to make sure that we utilize people's backgrounds because those are their strengths where they're going to shine and teach them the skills that they need to really kind of bolster what they already know. Um, so I think setting the stage makes a big difference. I think it's also important for them to be able to work in some sort of collaboration with each other because I hear students say it was nice to see the excellent student work from someone who is a clinician because I can see different ways of thinking and someone who's on the clinician side would say oh well it was really nice to hear from that person in marketing when they created this infographic about medical cannabis to give to a patient because it was really understandable and they understand how to utilize space and how to get people's attention and printed materials. So just emphasizing that the diversity is a strength, um, just like diversity is a strength in all capacities and having a way for people to um, work together in certain capacities, but understand that people's jobs are are different and, and that and that's a strength too. So I want to make sure that I'm tailoring to everyone's strength. I have gotten some pushback where people will try to to switch into other pathways um, or sections or they want to work on something else. And I I just let them know, hi, I, I really designed this with you in mind. So please, please give it a chance and see. I, I made sure that the information is rich and is going to be beneficial. And if you don't think it is, please tell me what you think that I could add to this pathway to further enrich your experience in my class. So I'm constantly getting feedback, collecting feedback. I am known to, I know I'm not supposed to do it, but sometimes I will do a little change in my class, even while it's running based on student feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I remember how responsive you were. And that that responsiveness really kind of leads us to the next challenge that um, that popped up as we got under the hood of designing this course together. Um, and that had to do with the student's ability, um, and the accessibility of evidence, um, in this field, in the medical cannabis arena. So can you talk a little bit about that? How, how you noticed this, uh, coming up as an issue and how you responded in real time to provide the support students needed to, to practice this skill? I feel like there is a real problem with people being able to interpret evidence in general. Um, we have a lot of scientific studies that are constantly coming out, but I feel like a lot of people and myself included, which is why I spent a lot of time coming, bringing myself up to speed on these things, they have a difficult time understanding the nuances of the evidence. And a lot of that has to do with different factors, but it could even be something like the media reporting study results that says that cannabis helps with, well, cannabis cures anxiety or these really sensationalized kind of bits of information that we get pulled from studies. Um, and working in some other courses that were really rich, I realized when I was 
grading and instructing in those, the students really struggle with being able to dissect evidence. So I was lucky enough to meet you, Erin, um, and tell you and talk to you a little bit about how I wanted to incorporate this into my class. So what I started, uh, just evidence-based practice in general, I did a lot of research on the back end to figure out what would be kind of the content that I would want students to know. Duke has done, a, they have a lot of great modules about evidence-based medicine. Um, and I worked with our School of Pharmacy librarian, Emily Gorman, to also pull resources on evidence-based medicine and how to teach that. And I was lucky enough to find kind of a framework for teaching evidence-based medicine, which is the five A's. So that starts with really assessing. All evidence-based medicine starts with the patient. So that starts with assessing the patient carefully and figuring out what kind of factors are going to come into play when we eventually recommend therapy. Then you ask a question. So you ask a PICO question, which stands for person, oh, population, intervention, comparison, and outcome. Asking that question allows you to find a study that is going to appropriately answer that question. After you ask that question, you go on to analyzing the, well, excuse me, acquire. So you go to acquire the data. So I actually teach students specifically how to locate data from PubMed and Embase. And I worked with Emily Gorman again because the library has so many great resources about how to acquire scientific data. Um, then after that, they appraise a clinical study. So Duke has these really great worksheets that go through that talk about different biases in studies and biases what can really shift error that's introduced into the study that can shift the results. So students go through and they dig and dig into the nitty gritty to find the bias in the studies and have an opinion on that. And then finally, they are going to provide their overall um, analysis and assessment of that patient. So they take the initial assessment of the patient, their assessment of the literature, and then they put it all together and they utilize that to make recommendations for the patient that are based in evidence. And so I, um, <clears throat> when I was a little, I was trying to figure out how to incorporate this into my class, talking with you, we decided that we were going to incorporate different objectives of this process throughout the modules because evidence has shown that students actually learn better when things are spaced out instead of just kind of the whole uh, fire hydrant, this is everything about evidence-based medicine. <laughs> so they had an opportunity to really practice every step. And then at the end of, by the end of my course, they can do all five steps seamlessly without as much instruction. 
So I start with more worksheets to guide them in the beginning and then those kind of fall away to when we just have some questions and I ask basically, is this patient a candidate for medical cannabis? Use evidence to back this up. And so it really is a fun, beautiful thing. <laughs> I, I really appreciated how you did that. Um, and, and just to make it maybe a little more concrete, because it's hard to, to talk about worksheets without seeing them. But one of the things I think that you did so effectively was um, to scaffold those worksheets as the semester unfolded. So in the beginning, um, you know, students are going through this whole process, but instead of acquiring the evidence, you're providing the article. So you're you're putting in those pieces that they're not quite ready to do yet, so they can focus on those first two steps, and then and then you find an article so that they can go through it, and and you know what's in that article, and so you know what they should be seeing and finding in that. Um, and and I just thought that was so great. There were so many examples of ways that you would gradually take things out that you were providing for them initially, um, just the way a scaffolding supports a building until it's sturdy enough to stand on its own. Um, and then really by the end of the semester, it's like, okay, here's your patient case. Go to it, <laughs> I mean, basically. Um, and and I just, I think that was just so intentionally done. Um, and it was, it was just really a pleasure to watch that unfold. I think the other thing that I just want to highlight too from what you were saying is that you didn't have to necessarily recreate the wheel as you were making these instructional choices. Um, and I think that's so important sometimes when we realize our students have a gap or there's this um, there's this big skill set that we want to develop, but you think, oh my gosh, that would involve basically building a whole new course within the course that I'm already building. Um, but you found some outside support. You found that uh, tutorial from Duke and you used the the skills and uh, materials from a librarian. So it's just it's just important to realize that for some of these things that are uh, common, I mean, searching, searching the literature is a common skill across um, all disciplines, but especially in the health profession. So taking advantage of what's out there and seeing what's there that um, that you might not have to create on your own. It's really important. Definitely. I am so happy for all the and just working at UMB, there are so many people who are willing to help if I ever have a question or want to incorporate something into my class, someone can always point me in the right direction. So that's a great thing about working here. Um, one thing I did want to highlight, though, about the course is part of the scaffolding, though, was also providing a lot of feedback. And so the way that I did that for each step was in my class, when students complete, uh, everything kind of starts with a quiz based on some reading. Instantly, as soon as they submit that and receive a hundred on it, that drops down feedback that provides explanations for why the answers are the way they are. Um, when we get to more complex parts, like asking a PICO question where that has to have four components or so, they ask their PICO question, they submit that, and then instantly, boom, they get feedback on what should be in the, what is expected to be in the PICO question. So students have told me that that's really helpful because these classes, it's only one week 
to learn all these content, all this content. And now I have content, plus I do this reinforcement of evidence-based medicine in my class. So my class is is a lot and students say they're they're thankful for it and it's rich, but I've gotten feedback that because that stuff shows so quickly, it really helps them figure out how to take the information and put it together for more complex steps. Just so that it's clear for the listeners, this feedback has been pre-populated. So you're not individually grading each quiz and going in student by student and providing that based on their scores. They're comparing what they've submitted to a uh, kind of um, uh, version that you've put up there so they can make that comparison on their own. Is that Correct. right? So uh, more, I call it a detailed answer key. And then um, the... Throughout a, a module, there might be various assignments. These detailed answer answer keys are going to pop out. I might have two or three assignments. Um, for their last assignment, that's always a little bit more comprehensive. But I still have uh, excellent student work pop up at the end. But then we still go through, me and all the lovely TAs and instructors, and we provide them uh, meaningful personalized feedback, but a lot of that feedback too, we work on in advance so that we can structure like this type of assignments missing these components. So we already have built out responses for things that could happen. So that makes grading easier because what I ask students to do is a, a lot of work, but I also don't want to make my TAs and instructors have to go through all this labor of figuring out what to say. So I just figure that out in advance for them. <laughs> well, it's such a nice balance. So students get that immediate feedback. So as soon as they submit, they have something to compare it to. But you're really saving your time and energy energy and your TA's time and energy on that more comprehensive assignment at the end. Um, but even that, it sounds like you've got like a repository of of kind of maybe common uh, strengths and weaknesses that you might see across these assignments that you can then tailor just so that you're efficient, but it's still personalized. Exactly. And I think it's important for the listeners to know that this, uh, the numbers of students in this program are huge. I mean, it's, there can be, um, how many people are in the program now? Oh, wow. Um, so I think we have about, and I'm off a little bit, but maybe around 250 or so. So I have taught classes where I have 60, 70 students. I've also been in other classes where I where I'm helping TA where there's 200 students. So I'm asking students to do a lot. I'm asking them to review the literature, go through bias, all these complex steps. When there's that many students, there has to be something set up to be able to provide that meaningful feedback but still be structured in some capacity or it could take forever to grade. And we've gone through that before. So that's why I now have the more structured feedback. Exactly. And and this happens after iterations, right? So this isn't something, um, you know, that people figure out before the first launch of the course. I'm sure these are systems and things that have developed over time. But uh, speaking of all those students, another opportunity or challenge that presented itself as this course unfolded uh, really had to do with the the volume of requests and the volume of communication that you were trying to manage. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
uh, about how that unfolded and and what strategies and boundaries you put in place to to help you manage that. Yes. So this was my first experience teaching in an online environment, and it's vastly different than when you are in person. Um, Also, I had students, like I said, diversity is a strength. We have students from all over the world. So people are in different time zones. Um, So I had to figure out what to do because the emails, there were so many emails about so many things coming in at all different times. So I actually, um, I work really closely with the instructional designers in the School of Pharmacy. Um, I talk to them probably weekly or more while my course is running. So I brought it up to the instructional design team and, and they were able to really help me kind of set some boundaries. So what was suggested was that I make specific hours within my course where I respond to things. So, and don't respond to anything outside of those hours as tempting as it might be. (laughs) So I set those from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I let students know that any requests received outside of this window, um, I will answer those the following day. Um, In addition, I decided to utilize the Cyber Cafe more. So the Cyber Cafe is a place in Blackboard where it's just basically kind of a discussion board and students can post questions there. So I was getting a lot of content related questions as well as technology related questions. So I told students, hey guys, all your questions are important, but I want to make sure if you have a question, other students probably have it as well. So can you just post that in the cyber cafe, any content related questions, so we can generate a rich discussion and then I'll address that every week in office hours. So that really started something. Students got way more comfortable. They might email me a content related question and I would say, can you please post this on the cyber cafe? Or, you know, I'll just go on ahead and post it on the cyber cafe because it's content related and I'll answer there. So that started clearing up my emails so that the only emails I were getting I was getting were for requests for recommendations or requests for um, extensions and, and other things that I, I wanted to be able to attend to. Um, I also worked with an instructional design department because um, in the School of Pharmacy, they told me that they could help me with all these technology-related concerns because even though I can, desi- I can design courses to an extent, I still always love their help. They are amazing. Um, I don't have those skills of physically building everything in Blackboard. So I was instructed if something breaks, let them know and they can assist me a little bit better. So I started doing that. I started telling students, hey, contact the pharmacy help desk if it's a technology related issue and CC me on it. And that allowed me to have more people looking at it. So if something goes wrong, we can fix a broken link or something. Um, So all those things, they, they started in some, they started working pretty well. Um, And then I tacked on an office hour um, where I have, I look at the cyber cafe, I pull any questions off there for the week. 
I also have another place on the Cyber Cafe where they can submit questions. Um, and I would have this in-person office hour, well, not in-person, online office hour where students vote on the time and we would talk about the questions, we would talk about any feedback students have because I like love feedback. And we would talk about any anything that they wanted to talk about, about medical cannabis within that hour. So that allowed me, now they have a place to express themselves. They have a place to meet me. We can talk um, and to get their questions answered. So all that stuff ended up working really well. Um, I also changed the due dates in my class because every class is a week and they start on Sunday and typically they end on Sunday. I changed them all till Tuesday for the next week. And I told students, hey, it's the weekend. Please don't contact me over the weekend. We can talk about it on Monday or Tuesday. You need to enjoy the weekend as well. So I don't answer anything on the weekends anymore. And all those together, I only get a few emails now and all the emails I get are very rich. And students um, have said, I've seen some of the reviews where students say, oh, Dr. Buckley has these strict hours for when she can communicate. But then I've also seen others that say, Dr. Ba Buckley just set a boundary. She set boundaries, just clean, clear communication. You know she's going to respond when she said she was going to respond. If she's not there, there's these other mechanisms to help us. So I feel like that's how the world works with boundaries. So I like having those in my class. And I'm happier now, so that's great. <laughs> that's, a, that's so great. And I think those are such concrete, tangible techniques that folks can do to help reduce that feeling of overwhelm, which I, I know can happen when we're in this space time continuum that's so odd in online courses. So thank you so much for sharing those. Um, we have talked about so many different uh, strategies, not just to online instruction, but really instruction in general. I guess of, of all of the things that you've learned through this experience of, of developing this course and this unique program, um, what advice would you give a, a faculty member who's just starting a, a course design process? Yeah, I would say that it's, I think that working with the instructional design team is one of the best things that you can do. You're not alone. And with the instructional design team, I feel like all the instructional designers I've had the opportunity to work with at the university, they really helped me figure out, okay, what are the objectives? And then what are going to be learning activities that can really support these objectives? So it's been so fun to just have that support, be able to bounce ideas off of people, be able to talk about different technology that can come into my class, to talk about just concerns that I'm seeing in real time and have an opportunity to really get evidence-based feedback because our instructional designers are just so well-trained. So I would encourage everyone to, to talk with the instructional design team and don't be a stranger at all. Yeah. I, so often we, we think of teaching in silos. Um, and I, I, I think that's so important, just, just bouncing uh, these ideas off of anybody, but 
one thing, you know, as someone who's done instructional design, one thing that I really love about it is the way that like I get ideas from what you have designed, Tiffany, and the way that you've structured these assignments. And I can pass those along to people in completely different disciplines. Um, that idea of scaffolded worksheets and, and, you know, providing more at the beginning than at the end and the, 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 structures you've set around your communication policy, that kind of thing, those are transferable. And so um, we have the luxury and the and the really exciting benefit of being a repository for so many of these ideas that then we can kick back and say, hey, this worked over for my my friend Tiffany in pharmacy found this effective. What do you think? Could this work in your class? So um, so that's fun for us too. It has been a joy to collaborate with you over these past couple of years, and I am so glad that we had the opportunity to have this conversation. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thanks for all the work that you've done on my courses over time. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.